Imagine you become what you always wanted to be when you grew up, a school teacher. You live in Lafayette, Louisiana, you're married to a star college football coach, and you have a bunch of kids. Those kids become a handful, so you decide to leave your dream job and be a stay-at-home mom for a little while. That little while turns into 15 years. Then you decide, you know what, I want to go back to work, but not as a teacher. This time, I want to be the governor of Louisiana. You know, it was a series of of dominoes that happened in quick order. This is Jeremy Alford, the editor of Louisiana political blog La Politics. She was the first woman to be elected from the Lafayette region to the state house representative. She was the first woman elected to the Public Service Commission. She was the first woman lieutenant governor. And uh, as we all know, she was the uh, the first woman to uh, be sworn in as governor of Louisiana. Kathleen Babineau Blanco, a carpet cleaner's daughter from Iberia Parish, turned school teacher, turned stay-at-home mom, turned Louisiana's first female governor. The Washington Post referred to her as, as a soothing Cajun grandmother. But one who could still pull an attack ad against her opponent, Bobby Jindal. And then still, someone who wasn't afraid to wear her soft side on her sleeve. Jeremy remembers a defining moment during a televised debate. She knew the question was coming. It was to explain one of the more impactful moments from her life, and she recalled how uh, she lost her uh, youngest son, Ben, in a uh, scrapyard uh, accident, a workplace uh, incident. She kind of teared up on camera. This dichotomy of being sharp enough to cut, brittle enough to be broken, started to surface for the first time during that campaign where she won the governorship. I want to thank all of you across this state and those folks here in this room tonight for making history in Louisiana by making me the first woman governor of our great state. It was a huge moment for Louisiana, a red state in the Gulf South that voted in female Democrat. She won on a platform of education reform, juvenile justice, and economic development. But as it turns out, none of that would define her term. It's been an incredible day all along the Gulf Coast since early this morning when Hurricane Katrina landed. As a category four storm with 140 mile an hour winds, much more shocking than first thought. An entire ward of this city, the ninth ward, appears to be up to its rooftops in water. Uh, And it is just unbelievable. This is amazing and horrifying to see. Uh, Hurricane Katrina would define her term along with the slow, disjointed government response to the flood that left thousands of people stranded and dead. I told you earlier today, I didn't think this had turned out to be Armageddon. I was wrong. And of course, the kind of predictable game of finger pointing commenced. Instead of all levels of government being all hands on deck, it was one big blame game. That's when the concentration to discredit me started happening. really was meant to undermine my integrity, and it certainly worked. It did its job. From WRKF and WWNO, this is Sticky Wicket, Louisiana politics versus the press. We're taking on four historic clashes between Louisiana politicians and the media, one at a time, because these relationships have always been love-hate in the Pelican State. I'm your host, Lane Kaplan-Levinson. Today, Kathleen Blanco and the Katrina Blame Game. 
Blanco was sworn in as governor in 2004. Hurricane Katrina hit on August 29, 2005, just shy of two years into her term, and it dominated the rest of her time leading the state. So how did Louisiana's first female governor fare in that glaring national spotlight? On top of the sheer devastation and loss of life, those first few weeks saw the ugliest battles between state and federal government, between Democrats and Republicans, and between a woman in the governor's mansion and the men in the White House, all of which was put on display by a frenzied media caught up in the spectacle of one of this country's worst catastrophes. Kathleen Blanco came into her job with a clear plan and a great reputation. Bob Mann was Governor Blanco's communications director. She was seen as very competent and very devoted to creating jobs and expanding opportunity for people in Louisiana. He says the administration was doing a good job, and her ratings proved it. You know, she was cruising along, looking like in the next election year she she would be really hard to beat. That all changed. I think it was Friday that the storm turned. This is Stephanie Grace, a political columnist for the New Orleans Advocate. There was a hurricane out there, but it was heading to Florida. We all knew it was heading to Florida. And then Friday night, the alarms start going off. Wait a minute, is it coming back here? Stephanie Grace was covering the Blanco administration from New Orleans for the Times-Picayune. She evacuated to Baton Rouge. Because I figured I would be writing about you know, how government handles this thing. And I would be there for a few days and then I would come back home. And that's, I'm sure, what she expected too. But she and Blanco soon realized that that's not what was going to happen. Stephanie remembers watching a press conference at her friend's house in Baton Rouge. She says Blanco's face gave away the severity of what was to come. I remember how distraught she looked. She was getting the kind of inside scoop that, you know, this could really be devastating. Right now, I think it's important that we all get out as expeditiously as possible. Now, we just flew over here and... Uh, she was in shock, I think, as, as so many of us were. This is Jarvis DeBerry, the deputy opinions editor for The Times-Picayune and NOLA.com. We could conceptualize this happening. You know, New Orleans is a bowl and it will fill up with water and we're really going to be in trouble if that were to happen. But to actually witness it happening, I think a lot of people were kind of stunned. And I think she gave the appearance, to some people at least, of being kind of a deer in the headlights. There are great challenges ahead of us. As you know, we expect that when the final count is completed, several thousand may have died. It took several days for the full extent of the disaster to come into focus. Blanco's communication director, Bob Mann. You had almost from one end of Mississippi to halfway down across Louisiana up to Baton Rouge, you had severe damage or devastation. It was just almost impossible to describe. And I think it was really impossible in the hours and two or three days after the event for anyone to, to have dealt with it successfully. There is just no way that any government could be in control of the situation because the situation is beyond control. We don't have to rely on other people's descriptions of what Kathleen Blanco was facing. She can tell it herself. I called her up and asked if she'd be willing to give me her version of events so I could hear what all of this was really like for her. And to be honest, I was a little surprised when she said, sure. 
She invited me into her living room. Is that a wedding picture of you two? Yeah. yeah. Can I just look at it? It again? is. <laughs> I met her husband, Raymond, a.k.a. Coach. It was his birthday, by the way. 83. Wow. Woo. Maybe she'll take me somewhere tonight. <laughs> yeah, are you guys going to go dinner? out to dinner? Only if you're a good boy. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that means we're not going anywhere. <laughs> and after a quick tour of the place, we sat down to talk. We sat there for three hours as Governor Blanco told me her story. A story that she remembers like it was yesterday, starting from the moment nothing went as planned. The buses did not run on time. Evacuation buses, which meant that people couldn't get out of harm's way. I was assured over and over by Michael Brown of FEMA that the one thing that they had access to that they could deliver quickly was the big touring buses that they had contracts for. I never have learned what happened to those buses. The federal buses were supposed to arrive on Monday, the day the storm touched down in New Orleans. But they didn't get there until Thursday. So those were the four days of misery for thousands of people who were trapped in the Superdome. Panicked, Blanco had the state send in school buses. This was a blistering month of August, and it was intensely hot. So you had elderly people, you had babies and children and with their parents standing on the concrete highways out in the sun without any relief. The federal delay brought immediate scrutiny to how the White House was handling this hurricane. Those buses were three days late, and it wasn't until the day after that when President Bush finally arrived to New Orleans. So he was accused of being aloof and what have you. Well, obviously, you know, when a president is under attack, media attack, they decided to salvage their reputation. They needed to try to do a takeover. In the form of federalizing the National Guard. Blanco says this was a save-face effort by the Bush administration and FEMA to make it appear that they were taking charge and in control. But her staff said, don't federalize the National Guard, because the guards at the state level were actually better trained for these kinds of events. So she stood up to the White House and said no. But once I did that, once I challenged the White House, then that's when the concentration to discredit me started happening. And the blaming began. Bush's communication director, Carl Rove, told the national media that the reason federal help was delayed was because Blanco hadn't signed a disaster declaration until after the hurricane hit land. Well, it was easily proven to be false. I had announced a declaration on Friday before the storm, the minute Louisiana was declared to be in the cone of influence. So, of course, if something comes from Washington and comes from outside, it's got to be true. But it was a total lie. The media took Washington's story and ran with it. Why didn't the governor? Why didn't the governor? Why didn't the governor? It really was meant to undermine my integrity, and it certainly worked. It did its job. As arguments swirled about who was responsible for the breakdown of law and order in New Orleans, Miles O'Brien spoke to the governor on CNN's American Morning. Let's talk about that request for federal troops, 40,000 federal troops. When did you make that request? Was it on your first phone call to President Bush? Okay, my first phone call uh, or my first conversation with President Bush was asking for all federal Firepower. And, I mean, I meant everything. Just send it. 
give me planes, give me boats. But did, but did you ask, boats, did you specifically ask, Governor, did you specifically ask for troops? Did you ask that the Pentagon deploy troops? Because that is a very specific request that a governor we had, needs to make of the federal government. We had troops. We had troops being deployed. You know, I saw that when we did you make that a request, greater capacity. Though? Miles, I'm lost When in did the you days. make that request? I don't there, even know it today. On Wednesday morning. I made that request. When, when you spoke, I, I think she got beat up pretty bad. Jarvis DeBerry agrees that Washington threw Louisiana under the bus to save its own image, which influenced the media. But he says it wasn't just a brawl between federal versus state. This was about partisanship. Louisiana had a Democrat who was governor. The city of New Orleans had a Democrat. And we were dealing with a Republican White House. And so it was to the Bush administration's advantage to direct all the blame to this Democrat who was in office. Bob Mann. And I think that it really hit me that not everybody in Washington had Louisiana's best interests at heart when James Carville called me. The Democratic political strategist from Louisiana. And said, look, I just, I just want to give you a, a heads up that the Bush administration is going to come after you guys really hard in the next day or two, certainly by Friday, they're going to blame everything on Governor Blanco, so get ready. On top of the White House blaming her, Blanco's team was battling media coverage full of false information and overly dramatic video clips playing on loop. This is a good example of how I think television can distort an event. So, you know, there were, there were people who were looting. Cameras caught, you know, two or three instances of somebody walking out of a Walmart with a color television or whatever. The networks just played those images over and over and over and over again. They were just sort of burned into your consciousness. Looters are running free. And I think what happened with us and with the American people is that after you see it for a while, you're thinking that this is happening everywhere across the city, that it's just, you know, widespread looting going on. And so then comes, well, what are you going to do about it, Governor? I mean, there's just looting going on. There's, it's anarchy down there. What are we going to do? There was so much chaos. Kathleen Blanco. They weren't checking their stories. They were letting every lunatic who was happy to approach a mic say whatever they wanted to say. So it was scaring people. This only aggravated the negativity around Blanco's image. Suddenly, she couldn't do anything right. Her tone of voice, her remarks, her facial expressions, they were all wrong. The image that people saw in her was maybe someone who was, I don't know, overwhelmed or bedraggled. Maybe she had bags under her eyes or whatever. Just, you know, the kind of optics of it. Columnist Stephanie Grace. She was very, very emotional, as many people were. And I think people kind of read her tone of voice, read too much into her tone of voice, but really that's just the way she talks. The magnitude of the situation is untenable. It's, it's actually, it's just heartbreaking. People really thought she was not as in command of things, just again from presentation, tone of voice. Was she upset? Of course she was upset. And then Jarvis says, people got angry. She uh, suggested that we have a day of prayer to memorialize those who were dead and to pray for those who were yet suffering. And I think a lot of people just thought that was too touchy-feely and too sentimental, that it did not exhibit the kind of take-charge leadership that they thought that the state needed. And there were people rolling their eyes saying, really, that's what you got, pray. I've thought about this a lot. Stephanie Grace. 
you think like with a woman politician how narrow their lane is compared to men in terms of expected behavior and how people will interpret your behavior and I think this was kind of an added burden that she had that other governors would not have had. The added burden of being a woman. Her tone was too unsteady or too flat or too emotional. And God forbid she shed a tear over people stranded on rooftops hoping to be saved. I can't help but think of Brett Kavanaugh, who cried throughout his 45-minute opening statement in the Christine Blasey Ford hearing after she accused him of sexually harassing her in high school. He cried, he yelled, he cried some more, and then he was elected the newest justice to the Supreme Court. I don't think it's possible to separate the responses to the governor from sexism. Jarvis DeBerry. There has to be that consideration when we talk about how people were responding to a woman in leadership and a woman in power. You know, I don't think that a governor who's a man calling for a day of prayer would have been criticized. You know, it would be seen as a sign of humility and not necessarily as a sign of weakness. Bob Mann recalls how some officials treated her, like the first time they met FEMA director Michael Brown. And Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job. The FEMA director's working 24 It was before the storm hit, for sure. Michael Brown comes in to Baton Rouge, and uh, I'd never heard of him, never met him before. For some reason, I thought he was a former governor at the time, and I didn't realize that he was basically a guy who ran a horse association who had no qualifications for the job. But he he certainly had a lot of assurance. And in fact, I was immediately struck by the fact that he was very condescending in his manner to her and was sort of telling her, don't you worry, we got this little lady. Uh, You just make sure you get your rest. We'll take care of everything else. Kathleen Blanco says all this showed her she'd been living in denial when it came to gender and power. I refused to believe that gender would have any effect on how people treated me. I didn't feel it until that Katrina experience. One incident stands out just three weeks after Katrina hit. Another storm, Hurricane Rita, was threatening the Louisiana coast. Blanco held a press conference urging people to evacuate again. One of the reporters from a national media outlet was in the press conference, and I was explaining that people needed to evacuate. And this woman said, well, Governor, do you think you're capable of handling this hurricane? I mean, it was a total insult. You know, I just turned to her very coldly and I said, yes. And that's all I said. Jarvis DeBerry admits that he, too, piled on to the negative media attention. There's one column in particular that he now really regrets. It was a response to the announcement that she was going to write a memoir. And I was mocking the way that she communicated to suggest that the book was not going to possibly be very good. He latched on to what he saw as a disjointed way that she spoke. That sometimes left listeners a little bit confused, at least from my perspective. And so I forced this comparison and imagined how she might write a book. And it gave the impression that she wasn't very bright. Governor Blanco will never forget it either. It was so insulting. It was personal. He did a personal insult, you know, and he felt, you know, like he was justified in doing that. What gave me the license to 
be as insulting and belittling as I was. I personally can't exonerate myself of sexism because I don't want to be labeled a sexist person. And so I'm not going to do that. What I'm saying is that I know that I was out of line. It was not my proudest moment, as you can probably tell as I'm sitting here talking about it. Stephanie Grace says she piled on two in her own way. She's a member of the crew of Muses, an all-women's Mardi Gras group famous for snarky floats that poke fun at local politicians. The theme of the 2007 parade, two years after Katrina, was super, with different spoofs on superheroes. New Orleans Mayor Ray Nagin was Mighty Mouth instead of Mighty Mouse. Instead of Superman, we had Cooperman, Anderson Cooper. But the Kathleen Blanco float was Wondering Woman. Like, I wonder what I should do. I wonder if I should call in buses. I wonder if I left the toaster on. I wonder, you know, that was the image, I think, that people had of her as kind of indecisive and slow to react and maybe just not up to it. That, I think, was the image that had taken hold by then. And is that an image that you agreed with at the time? Um, I guess I did. Blanco was well aware that people saw her in this way, and her staff was eager to defend her and fight back. But she made the decision early on not to waste time and energy on an image problem. I looked at my staff and I said, stop. Everybody stop. We don't have enough energy or time to be dealing with all of that noise. We have lives to save. That is our priority. And they got very upset because they said to me, but governor, they're destroying you. And I said, but that doesn't matter. Every minute that we spend focusing on that noise prevents us from saving lives. You let them go. I don't care. I really don't care. I do care about every life that we save. And once the immediate danger had passed, she cared about every dollar she could save for the state. Mississippi, which happened to have a male Republican governor, got disproportionately more funds than Louisiana. Mississippi had 22% of the Katrina damage. Louisiana, 75. Mississippi got 5.2 billion, and Louisiana got 6.2 billion in the first round of funding. Now that is completely unequal and I went back to Washington and I said, the reason I'm sitting here is because I want the president's support. I need $4 billion right now. And there was a little tussle, but anyway, I ended up getting that $4 billion with his support. He said, let's go for it. Kathleen Blanco says she was more focused on rebuilding her state than her reputation. I just had to put up with the noise in between. Do you think that the noise had any impact on you deciding not to run again? Well, into that last year of office, I was physically exhausted and I began to show physical signs of stress. I was losing my own health. And I thought, you know, I've got to get out of this. She did not run for a second term in 2007. She says it was mostly due to health concerns. So the media was a big driver and deliverer of that stress. They overlaid another weight on 
everything we were doing. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll be the first to say, you absolutely need the media. Media can be so powerfully good and so powerfully destructive. Jarvis DeBerry knows all too well that the media played a role. But also, he says, look at the polls. Blanco's ratings tanked as her term progressed, and he chalks that up to her Road Home Recovery Program. I think the great mess that was the Road Home Program signaled to her that there is no way that she could win election again. It was her downfall. A lot of people share this opinion, but still, he and others have come around on Governor Blanco's overall legacy. I mean, for if nothing else, she left the state flush with cash, which her successor did not. And so I think the more distance we get from her tenure in office, we're going to see that she was actually a much better leader and much better executive than she's often given credit for. Stephanie Grace. I have to say it took me a while to see that in her. And I you know, kind of blame myself a little bit, and I wonder how much that is kind of gender assumptions and all kinds of things like that. Roughly three years after Kathleen Blanco decided not to run again, she was diagnosed with cancer. She can't help but wonder if the level of stress she endured as governor has any connection. These things don't just come up overnight. They just kind of percolate. It's now I'm dealing with an incurable cancer, liver cancer. You know, the liver is a real sneaky organ. It doesn't give you any warning that it's sick. Then one day you're really, really sick and it's too late. She spends her days with her husband and her piles of children and grandchildren who come in and out of her Lafayette home like it's their own. And when Kathleen Blanco goes out in the world, whether she's at the grocery store or the bank, people walk up to her to thank her for the very things they once criticized her for. I've had... People walk, strangers walk up to me. I might be shopping, looking at a blouse or a shirt for my husband or something, you know. And people will walk up to me and they say, we are so thankful that you were our governor. I've heard this so many times, it's really, it's almost like a message went out. But they say, you were the right person at at that time to be the governor. We're so glad it was a woman there because you had an empathetic heart and an empathetic ear. You gave us what we needed. It makes me wonder what would have been different if anyone had been saying that in the moment. Right. Have you ever regretted not running again? No, I haven't. Listen, I had 24 years of service and it was because the people affirmed me each time. And I appreciate that. And even though that work was so hard and so harshly judged, I knew that I was doing it right, okay? And that history would prove me to be right. And I think it has. Thank you. 
Sticky Wicket is a production of WRKF Baton Rouge and WWNO New Orleans Public Radio. This series is part of the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative, a project of the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, which seeks to deepen the public's knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. Thanks to the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for their generous support and the Federation of the State Humanities Councils and Pulitzer Prizes for their partnership. Sticky Wicket is also in partnership with La Politics, Xavier University of Louisiana, and Louisiana State University. Our editor is Eve Tro. Our producer is Mara Laser. Our composer is Peter J. Bowling. Our graphic designer is Riley Tehan, And our illustrator is Jasper Means. This is the fourth and final episode for now. But in the meantime, go find the other three episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. And please be sure to rate and review the show. Also, find us on Instagram at StickyWicketPod. I'm Lane Kaplan-Levinson, and this has been a real Sticky Wicket. Sticky Wicket.